This episode of The Overlook is presented by Sunlight Tax, financial advice and tax planning tailored for creatives. Learn more at sunlighttax.com. Luzine Hill is an enrolled member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians living in Cullowee. She didn't think of herself as an artist until well into midlife. Today, she's untethered in her mediums of expression and also the depths of trauma she draws from. One of the art instructors said, I really like your drawings. They express the vulnerability of women very well. And I literally pushed back from the dinner table physically to get away from her because I thought my trauma, I had glimmers that it was in there, but I denied that anybody could see it. A series of recent drawings and a new performance video are at the core of Revelate, an exhibition of Hill's work on view through May 15th at the Asheville Art Museum. In today's episode of The Overlook, Hill talks about her formative years in Atlanta, her path to artistic expression, and the personal and cultural trauma and violence informing her art. We'll get to my conversation in just a moment, but I first want to introduce you to Hannah Cole. She's an Asheville artist who makes beautiful paintings. She's also an accountant who started Sunlight Tax in large part to help creatives like her. We're approaching tax time, and Hannah says a lot of freelancers miss out on a potentially big deduction, mileage. You have one car and you use that for personal stuff, like buying your groceries, but you also are gonna, with that, like come and meet with somebody you're gonna interview, and that would be a business trip. So that mileage is deductible, whereas the grocery store is not. Hannah, do you have a simple trick for how people can keep track of mileage that is deductible versus mileage that isn't? It's such a dumb answer, but yeah, get an app. Hannah produces a lot of videos, a podcast, a blog, a visual guide to deductions, all free of charges, community financial resources. She also has a more comprehensive money boot camp. Find out more about all of it at sunlighttax.com. I began my conversation with Luzine Hill, asking about her upbringing and immersion in her Cherokee heritage and culture. I was born in Atlanta, I grew up in Atlanta. My father was in the army, so he moved around a lot, but we pretty much stayed in Atlanta with my white family, my grandparents. And my art, I think, brought me into wanting to know more about my culture. Intellectually, I knew about Cherokee history, and we came often to visit my grandparents in Cherokee. And it was very different from living in Atlanta and growing up in the, in the 50s and the 60s in a blue-collar neighborhood inside the city of Atlanta. And both my parents encouraged me to know about Cherokee things. And my, but I didn't, I knew it intellectually, but I was half. What's interesting to me in looking at your work, it seems to be so heavily about Cherokee identity. You said it was an exploration, yet at the same time, it seems to me that from the very outset of your art, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it was a claiming of your heritage. It wasn't just simply an exploration, but there was a real claiming of your heritage. Yes, and that came about 
again, my art pulled me to that. I, my drawings have always been like surrealist automatic drawing. I don't have an idea about what I'm going to draw when I am standing in front of the paper. I just start making marks on the paper. And when I first started exhibiting, I was in Atlanta and I was making some drawings and they're abstract and figurative in general, what I usually do, because I love the figure and I love the life drawing. But I was standing there and I started making marks and I began to see bones. And then I saw in my mind bones in an archeological gravesite. That's just what I was seeing on the blank paper. But did you come to art relatively late in your life? Or... Yes. So talk about that very inclination to create. What were you doing and what was your age roughly I'm when sure. that hit you and what inspired that, that move to art? I was married, my daughter was growing up and I, I was a stay-at-home mom and I enjoyed decorating the house. And I realized now that was a creative outlet for me, but I didn't, I hadn't had classes. I hadn't taken art in school, blue collar. Being an artist wasn't even considered like anything to aspire to. So when my daughter was old enough to be in school full time, I went back to school to finish my degree that I stopped after two years to get married. And luckily, I decided to go into interior design, did that. And I had, my first class was Drawing 101. I had a magnificent instructor who was a great artist, Sam Rusi. And I'd never taken a drawing class. And he was excellent. And after two weeks, interior design was out of my mind. All I wanted to do was draw. It's interesting to me that you were initially drawn to interior design, which is usually not about personal social expression in that way. It's that seems like a universe away from the kind of work you do. What were you looking to express? You talked a little bit about how you wanted to explore your heritage. What did you find initially that you wanted to express? I started researching DeSoto. And when I learned how brutal and cruel I decided to do a series of drawings and paintings called In DeSoto's Path. And they were all bones. And they were bones like you would see if you looked down at an archaeological dig. And then they got more abstract and they were just, they were bones. But there was a lot of trauma in them. So my research feeds what comes out in my work. And I often don't really, I don't plan it. When you mentioned the trauma, Do you think, looking back retrospectively, that you were expressing generational or ancestral trauma? I think unconsciously I was. And then, as I said, I I research and I continue to. And so the more that I learn, the more that I want to say. I stopped going to art classes at a certain point because my parents were aging and my grandparents were aging. I had to put my art on hold for 12 years, which was from my 30s to my mid-40s. At that point, how long had you been working on your art? About two years, maybe. I don't want to put a word in your mouth, but I can imagine frustrating doesn't begin to cover it because (laughs) you were just kind of discovering this thread of yourself. And then you put that on the shelf 
for 12 years, why so long? And what happened to you emerging from those 12 years that informed your art when you went back to it? My grandparents that had more or less raised me, my mother and then my father was declining up here in Cherokee. So that's four people declined. I'm an only child, so it was me and I was taking care of them a lot. My marriage was not going well because this passion that had been ignited in me for art was really threatening to my husband and among other things, so it wasn't the only thing. And two years after I was divorced, I was assaulted, sexually assaulted. So that was a really significant thing in terms of how I felt about life. And also in terms of understanding intensely trauma, understanding terror, and I've been a really sheltered child growing up and very protected and in it not a lot of experiences out in the world so that was something that changed my outlook after i got over the processing psychologically and physically of that i, I felt as though oh my gosh I really believed I was going to be killed that day, as many women do when they are assaulted. And so I, I thought, man, this is bonus. I know I was expecting not to be alive, and now I am. And it, it really changed my life about wanting to be in every moment, intensely in every moment, and savor the moment, and life is fleeting. And I try to express that in my work, in the drawings that are a lot of negative space and marks that are, that, that will just stop abruptly. But that also has led me into doing installations. Correct me if this is off base, but you're educating your audience in the way you educated yourself. Mm -hmm. And you had a personal motivation to educate yourself because of the culture that, the Cherokee culture yes. that you inherited. But you're also educating an audience that you presume is largely not native. And so I guess I didn't have that in mind when I asked you the question of the thread through your work, but I'm seeing that as a thread through. Am I on target on that? Oh yeah, you absolutely are. In DeSoto's Path was like my first exhibit of that series of drawings. And then the next one I did was a pilgrimage ribbon, which was about the loss of Aztec codices and native culture in general. And that reflects what I like to learn about. Then I was never intended to make art about violence against women at all. And I did some drawings that I thought were just little figures and abstract, expressive little, very small little figures, and showed them actually at Western Carolina when I was living in Atlanta. And someone, one of the art instructors there, she said, I really like your drawings. They express the vulnerability of women very well. And I literally pushed back from the dinner table physically to get away from her because I thought my trauma 
I had glimmers that it was in there, but I denied that anybody could see it. What was so troubling to you about that notion? Because you're, that had to occur to you when you're making your work that there's a strong sense of both being a woman and claiming that against the patriarchy, you're very overt about that. Yeah, now. And at the same time, oh, now. So talk about how, but you pushed back against that before you fully embraced it. Intensely pushed back. This was about probably 10 years after I was attacked. When I was attacked, I was newly divorced. I didn't have a lot of money. I was trying to support myself without a degree or a career in business before. And I considered the trauma that I experienced and the violence, especially that that was something that it was extremely intimate and personal. And it was my responsibility to process it with body work therapy and with talk therapy, which I did. And it was not something that I was going to let define my life because I read books about women who were afraid to go out of their house and their relationships were destroyed and things like that. And I thought, nope, not me. I'm, I'm going to work on this and it's going to be painful to do it, but I'm going to work on it. So that's one of the things that I realized in my work that I can bring that topic into a gallery, into art and into a kind of a safe place. Because when I first showed work at the University of North Carolina in Asheville, that was the first time I had addressed it. And was this while you were still living in Atlanta? I had moved up here, and it was in 2009. It was called The Body and Blood. And it was focused on statistics about global sexual assault and violence against women, and particularly in conflict. And that led me to discover the horrifying statistics about Native women, because I had not dwelled on this. That was my thing. This is separate from my art. But when that instructor saw it in my work, I thought, I have no control over this. It's going to come out. And it's in me, and I'm not ready. I'm not ready to claim it. I'm not ready to talk about it. And it took me another year and a half to accept that. And then I took four of those drawings and made a little book, an accordion book, mm. that was, a, it was exactly about my experience. And it's called Shattered. And then it took me a year to show anybody that book. And that was very good information for me as an artist and a, a concept that I totally embrace that if you're really trying hard and you're trying to do good art, then it's got to come from really in deep in your core. And if it does come from your core, then the viewer's core is going to respond to it. What did that do for your art once you did embrace it and you had shaken off the initial horror of, wait, I'm not talking about this. Once you said, I am talking about this, how did that change your art going forward? Then the subject changed into, I want to put out information and I want to shake someone up and say, this is, these are the numbers. They're big numbers of women. In the body and blood over the course of that, it was like 34 days it was up. 
there were 24,480 rose petals that were poured over this altar table. That was the work. And those represented the number of women in the U.S. that there were reported assaults each day. I was putting out numbers and I was in, intrigued with material volume, which is a device that other artists have used. So I got really interested in material volume and I thought seeing 24,480 things is more impressive to your mind than saying that number or writing that number or making that many marks. You absolutely don't want to thumb through the U.S. tax code to sort through all your potential deductions. You're in luck because Asheville artist and accountant Hannah Cole of Sunlight Tax has done that for you with a free guide to deductions for creative entrepreneurs. A lot of people, especially in the creative world, we don't tend to use very commercial language for what we do. What I wanted to create was a visual guide that has one column, which is how you think of it, what you call the thing you're doing, whether it's sending DMs on Instagram or your website, and then connect it to what the IRS calls that. And so it's very clear, the thing you call this, the IRS calls this. Your guide is very visual, Hannah, so how do people put it to use? It has the actual tax rules. And that's important because they're not all entirely the same and they're very much not all intuitive. So for example, how do I deduct my home office or my home studio? It's actually not hard to do, but if you don't know the rules, you might not be doing it the way you should be. Hannah's Guide to Deductions is free to download at sunlighttax.com slash deductionsguide. Let's get back to my conversation with Luzine Hill. One of the things that strikes me about your work and the span of your career, you're not a painter, you're not a drawer, you are not a sculptor, you're not a performer. It seems you're motivated by ideas and wherever that takes you, in terms of medium or expression, you just go there and you don't really think much about it. And I'm wondering, I can't imagine that your art school education prepared you for that. Like mo most BFA and MFA programs, you have to, what's your discipline? And, and you have instructors who are geared in discipline. Tell me how the education system, I know you studied at Western Carolina, how did the formal academic system serve you and not serve you, in particular you as an artist? I think I'm an exception in terms of that for two reasons. Because of that outstanding instructor I had in Atlanta at Georgia State with Drawing 101, which I then went to painting. And then I just kept taking independent study with this one particular person. Did a few other color classes that I had to take and they were incredibly confining and sort of soul-sucking, <laughs> and I hated them. And I was so grateful because if I had taken some of those other things first and then gone and had the drawing class, then I would have been, no, these are the rules, and these, this is the tight little marks you need to make with a colored pencil rather than just start making marks. 
I'm interested in your, for lack of a better word, adornment, costumery. And it, that seems to have been part of your performances from early on. Is it, in a way, are you drawing on yourself, in a sense? Are you sculpting or, or collaging on yourself with your costumes that you wear in performance? Yes, I am. The performance aspect is an extension of my wanting to engage the audience and to make, pull someone in and get them surrounded by it to an installation so that they're not allowed to be separated by a frame and glass of art. And if they get uncomfortable then and run out, that's fine with me because they're feeling something. I really love Anna Mendieta mm. and Marina Abramovich. When you started experimenting with performance and, and the costumery that yes. goes along with that, was that also, I have an idea, this is just how to express it? Yes, absolutely. Can you say the same about Revelate? Talk about that piece and the development of that work. I got interested in Mylar because I was invited to do something in Tucson that never developed about border issues. And that was when I didn't know much about it. So I looked and I, online and I saw an image of the Border Patrol giving Mylar blankets out to the refugees standing in El Paso at the river. And they were waiting for the buses and everything to come get them. but. They were standing there in the cold, in the dark. It was February. I saw a couple of things. I saw cold, poor, frightened people longing to be free and thought about the Statue of Liberty. And they're here, and they're not wanting to let them in, and they're giving them these blankets. And then in that same picture, I saw Native people wrapped in blankets, government-issue blankets some of which had been infected with smallpox. So the whole thing about blankets for Native people is really a very complex, mixed kind of a symbol. So I ordered some Mylar blankets to just see what it felt like. I was wrapped in the blanket and that was telling me something. And what it told me was, I'm gonna take this government issue, charity kind of thing that is given to someone that you're not really keen on because it offered no comfort. It makes you warm, but it offered no comfort. And I'm going to turn this into something with power. So I created Retribute, which was along with three little goddess figures. And the goddess figures were in the gallery in Albuquerque, along with the three capes, which coincided with the three goddesses, which were, were pre-contact goddesses that I copied. And I was thinking about the three furies in Greek mythology and the indigenous goddesses and retribute. And so they were the beginning of kind of superhero women. It came out of wrapping myself in the Mylar emergency blanket is what it came out of. But then with Revelate, I expanded the capes. And at that time, I, 
I begun to get more interested and learn more about matrilineal culture, which is really a big thing for me now, and it really my focus. Talk about how Revelate represents where you're continuing to pursue in your art. I'm going to continue to do more drawings with a lot of female bodies and rather than the male gaze, I'm doing the female gaze on my own body. And also next year, I'm going to have another cape that at the Autry that's going to be a Mylar one, but it's going to be full length and I'm probably going to do a performance. So I don't know how that's going to turn out, but it's going to be the next level for it, for whatever. I want to thank Luzine Hill for taking the time to talk with me about her work. The Asheville band The Resonant Rogues is allowing me to use their Maker song as the theme music for The Overlook. New episodes of The Overlook are online 6 a.m. every Monday through Friday. Please follow for free on your favorite podcasting app and sign up for our newsletter, which delivers all the week's episodes into your mailbox every Friday. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.